We are in part seven um, of a series on the Gospel of John, and uh, we've called it the last word because the Apostle John has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament. Three gospels or three epistles, a gospel, and the book of Revelation are the final documents written by any of the apostles, and John gets to write those. He is the only surviving elder of the New Testament when he writes, 60 years after Pentecost, 30 years after all the other apostles are gone. And so he really does have the last word in so many ways. Uh, we've been working off this chart. We're going to finish up the first half of the Gospel of John tonight. He spends the first half of his Gospel summarizing three years of Jesus' ministry. And in that section, uh, seven miraculous signs that John specifically picks to identify Jesus as the Word made flesh. And as we'll discover tonight, that section ends with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which you would think everybody would celebrate, but not everybody celebrates that. And it actually begins the plot of the Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death. Then John quickly changes and he spends the last half of his gospel, chapter 12 on, summarizing just one week of Jesus' ministry, his last week on earth leading up to the crucifixion. And uh, it's, it's quite amazing because John spends five chapters on just one very significant conversation at the Last Supper. So John's different than everybody else. Everywhere we look here, uh, John isn't just emphasizing where Jesus went or what he did, but he's emphasizing what Jesus said about himself and mostly who Jesus is. He's the word made flesh. So we pick up the story in John chapter 10 and Jesus is once again addressing a crowd of people and he says to them, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. I am. That's another one of those I am statements of Jesus. And then he says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now in Bible times, a sheepfold was usually just an enclosure made of rocks and it had a single opening for the door. And the shepherd would guard his flock at night by laying his body across that opening, literally making him the door of the sheep. Of course, when Jesus says, I am the door, it means even more than that because he's declaring himself to be God, the I am that I am. And when he says, I am the door, he's literally saying, I am the only way to have a relationship with God. I am the door. Thieves and robbers, well, they can uh, never enter in through the door. So they have to try to climb over the wall and, and enter in by stealth. But he makes it very clear, John does in this chapter, that even if thieves and robbers could get over the wall and could enter in by stealth, the sheep would never follow them because the sheep only follow the voice of their own shepherd. This is John's point. False shepherds don't lead sheep. They just steal sheep. 
In the Jewish mind, a shepherd was any kind of leader. Kings were considered shepherds. Priests were considered shepherds. So whether it was a spiritual or a political leader, the people that they led were the flock of the Lord. As Psalm 100 says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So if you read through the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and others, they condemn false shepherds who are only concerned with having a following, not in leading people to be followers of the Lord. So when Jesus speaks here, and John writes this down, Jesus' words target the thief, that's Satan. He only wants to steal and to kill and to destroy the sheep. He only wants to use people's lives for his own purpose and his own profit. But Jesus not only comes to give us life, he comes to give us abundant life. That word in the Greek language, I looked it up today, it means more than necessary, beyond the expected, over and above, or exceptional. Jesus came to give us more than just enough to get by. He came to give us abundant life, more than what we need, over and above, exceptional life. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He continues and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling fleeth for one reason, because he's an hireling. He's only paid. It's not his calling. It's not his burden. It's not what he wants to do. He's just interested in the money. He's an hireling and he doesn't really care for the sheep. Jesus' I am statements are everywhere in this gospel. I am the door, but he's not only the door to the sheepfold, he says, I am the good shepherd. He's the shepherd of the sheep. And so the Bible calls him the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Peter writes, he is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. He is, according to the psalmist, Jehovah Reah, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so Jesus is the ultimate pattern for every shepherd, every pastor that leads in any kind of way the people of God. Jesus is our ultimate pattern to emulate. If you read through John chapter 10, you'll see five different enemies of the sheep mentioned. First, there's the stranger whose voice the sheep don't recognize, so they just wander away. We need to be very careful of the voices that we allow into our lives today. There are just about as many versions of Christianity today as there are people in North America. And everybody's got their own little customized version of Jesus, customized version of the Bible, customized version of the plan of salvation. But we need to be very, very careful not to listen to strange voices. And then there's the thief who steals from the flock by craftiness. And there's the robber who steals from the flock by violent force. 
And then we come to the hireling that John just mentioned. The hireling leads the flock only for pay. He doesn't really care for them. So when the wolf comes, when the pressure's on, when the chips are down, he just flees and leaves the sheep to scatter and defend for themselves. And then, of course, the fifth enemy of the sheep, the stranger, the thief, the robber, the hireling, and the wolf. And the wolf devours and scatters that flock. John's point, and what Jesus is saying here, as it's recorded in John's gospel, is you need a shepherd. You need a shepherd who is your savior. That's the ultimate shepherd, the good, great chief shepherd. Yes, you need a savior, but can I tell you, you also need what the Bible would call an under shepherd. You need a pastor in your life. It doesn't work if you want to be an apostolic, New Testament, biblical Christian. It doesn't work to just use your pastor as an advisor or a mentor or a motivational speaker or a life coach. Those things are fine if you like them, but that's not a pastor. Your pastor is your shepherd. He is one called to feed and to lead the sheep. And we are the sheep. And sheep are called to be loyal and to follow the shepherd. That's it. I love what Bishop Wayne Huntley says. He says, you can't be right with the master and wrong with the pastor. That's pretty profound, as only Wayne Huntley could say. Here's what the writer of Hebrews said, a little more theologically perhaps. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Everyone say submit. Submit, submit is that Bible word that everybody loves to hate. And I always try to say two things about submission anytime I explain it. First of all, submission is very much like submarine. Submarine means under the water. Submission means putting your mission under somebody else's mission. That's submission. And so it's really important that as we think about a church family, we have a shepherd. And as pastor gives us direction and he challenges us, we're, we're, you know, in any given month or season, we might be doing prayer and fasting. We might be emphasizing doctrine. We might be emphasizing family or whatever we're doing. It's so important that we don't just kind of sit back and see if that works for pastor. It's so important that we submit to what the man of God is hearing and feeling and seeing for us. Somebody say amen. amen. So that's submission, putting our mission. Well, I wanted to do something else. They're doing prayer and fasting. I wanted to do buffet and feasting. Well, we already knew that. But submission, submit. Your mission under somebody else's mission. And then the other thing that I always try to say about submission is you can't submit when you agree. It's impossible. When you agree, that's just agreement. If pastor says, you know, we want to paint the walls red, and I already secretly wanted to paint the walls red, which I don't, um, then I just agreed with him. But if he says, well, I want to do this, and I didn't want to do that, but I go along with it, I submit. See, when, when you submit, you don't necessarily agree. You just understand spiritual order. There is nothing that is more fought against 
chafed under or resisted in today's world than spiritual authority and spiritual submission. And there is nothing that I know of that will protect your life more than spiritual submission to spiritual authority. I know nothing that will protect your life any more than that. It's so important. And, and so the writer of Hebrews says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? Because they watch for your souls. That's why. And someday when you stand in judgment, you give account for yourself. But when pastor stands in judgment, he gives account for himself and for you. As they that must give account, you want them to be able to do that with joy. On that day, you don't want pastor having to admit to Jesus, well, they were a real problem. You don't want pastor having to say, well, it took an awful lot of prayer and worry and concern and effort just to keep them stable. What you want pastor to be able to say on that day is they were a joy. They were a strength to the church. They, they, they helped us. They lifted up the hands of the saints and the pastors. that They may do it with joy and not with grief. And this is probably the understatement of the book of Hebrews for that is unprofitable to you. It won't go well for us on that day if we haven't submitted and been faithful and loyal to spiritual leadership. Now, that's as much as I have to say on that subject, but I think that's really, really important. Um, I, I can't tell you how much it's important. I'm 60 years old. I'm not looking for less accountability at this point in my life. I'm seeking out more accountability. I'm not less accountable to people because I'm older. I want to be more accountable every year of my life to people that can speak to me and uh, shepherd me, lead me, and correct me. And I hope you have that feeling, and I really believe that you do. Would you lift up your voice and just thank God for your pastor? I think that would be perfectly in order. I think that would be wonderfully in order. I'm so grateful we have a church with a pastor that loves the sheep of this flock and loves the people of God, loves the truth of the word, loves the cause of missions, loves this church. Thank God for our pastor. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Part of submitting would be praying for your pastor and holding him and his family up in prayer. And I thank God we have a church like that. Continuing on, Jesus says next, something that uh, false uh, religions and cults have sometimes misinterpreted, but it's very, very clear if you just read it. He says, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. False religions and cults have interpreted that to mean, well, there were the Christians, but now there's us. That's not true. What Jesus is saying there, he's talking to Jewish disciples at this point, and he's saying to them, don't you get too clannish or too cliquish, or don't you think this is just for you? I've got other sheep beyond the Jewish faith. Someday there's going to be Gentiles from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, and they're going to be part of this. And so I'm going to bring them. And in that day, there won't be two shepherds or two folds or two churches. There's just going to be one church. There's just going to be one 
one fold. There's just going to be one shepherd. You see, I'm so thankful that it was always God's will. Uh, the Jews got it wrong. The New Testament church almost got it wrong for many, many years. And finally, they got it straightened out. But it was always God's will that Gentiles, the other sheep, would be part of his church. The entire Old Testament points to that promise. Now the Old Testament's written primarily to the Jews, but even in the Old Testament, it pointed ahead to all of us. God always wanted you to be part of his church. God always wanted worship from Canadian saints like us. I'm so grateful. Here's what Malachi said. He's not the only one who spoke. He's just the last one who spoke in the Old Testament. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, God said, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm so grateful that that scripture has been fulfilled in the New Testament church. So I know how the time zones work. I've flown through a few. I've had jet lag from a few, but here's what I know, that when the sun comes up on our shores, from the time it comes up until the time it goes down, as long as you're awake, it's our turn to praise the Lord. For from the rising of the sun on one horizon to the going down of the same on the opposite horizon, it's our job, it's our task, it's our privilege. It's our honor to lift up the name of the Lord. I thank God for every apostolic in Africa and Asia and South America and Central America, all through Europe. But when it comes our turn in North America, I don't want us to lag behind everybody else. I want us to do a good job. I want us to please the Lord lifting up his name. We've got so many blessings here that so many of the countries and continents that I know of and you know of, they don't have those kind of blessings. Let's not let our blessings lull us into a smug, self-satisfied sleep. If the sun's up, it's time to worship him. If you're awake and got breath in your lungs, it's time to lift up the name of the Lord because from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, God said, my name shall be praised among the Gentiles. That's all of us. My, yes. My goodness. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always willing to interrupt a Bible study for a moment of passionate, heartfelt worship to the Lord. I'm always willing to interrupt a song or a sermon or any part of our service for a heartfelt moment of passionate worship to the Lord. You may not worship exactly like somebody else. They may be louder or softer than you. They may be more or less demonstrative than you. But it's your turn when the sun's up over your head. It's your turn when you have a chance to be awake in the presence of the Lord from the rising of the sun under the going down of the same my name shall be praised who among the Gentiles
Strength rushes into a church service when you worship him. Power rushes in to a church service as you worship him. Healing flows into a church service when you worship him. From the rising of the sun under the going down of the same. It was always God's will for you to be part of his church. That's a great high privilege. That's a great high privilege. Oh my. Now in the middle of all this discourse, the Jews, they challenge Jesus in verse 24 and they say, how long does thou make us to doubt? And they challenge him. If thou be the Christ, tell us, Plainly, his answer to that challenge and their reaction to his answer to that challenge leave no room for debate. Jesus was clearly claiming to be almighty God in a body of flesh. Here's what he says, pretty plain. I and my father are one. Instantly, next verse, next word, next phrase, the Jews took up stones again to stone him because the penalty for blasphemy is death by stoning. Why would they instantly reach for rocks when he says, I and my father are one? Because he wasn't just saying, we're one in intention, we're one in character. No, he was saying, I am God in a body of flesh. Jesus looked back at them as they pick up rocks and he says, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which one of these good works? Was it that healing or this healing or was it the feeding of the 5,000? For which one of these good works do you stone me? Their answer to his statement tells us everything we need to know. The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not but for blasphemy and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. End of story. That tells us everything we need to know. The Jews understood that Jesus was not claiming to be sort of like God or part of God. He was claiming to be God. Jesus was falsely accused of being a man who had made himself God, but it was the reverse that was actually true. He was God who had made himself man. And the mob tries to seize him again. But remember from last week, it was not yet his time. And so Jesus, once again, he escapes to a solitary place. He actually goes, it says they sought to take him again, but he escaped out of their hand. He went again away beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized and there he abode. Jesus once again escapes from them. It's not yet his time. And he goes to the place where he was baptized by John. Even Jesus, God manifest in flesh, had altars in his life. Special spots and special moments that he would revisit. Special conversations, special moments, those are something that we need. I hope you've got some altars in your life. Sometimes an altar is a spot where you go. One of my altars is a, a, an old dilapidated foundation, just cement, all grown up in trees. People have thrown garbage in it. Someday I need to get a truck and go up there and clean it out. 
but it's an altar because that's where my great uncle received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, December the 28th, 1920. It's an altar. I just walk onto that little piece of property just below Nakawick. Instantly feel the presence of God. That's an altar for me. But altars don't have to be a place. Altars can be a special moment. Altars can be a place or a moment or a time or a conversation in prayer that you've had with God. And you can go back there to that moment and you can draw strength from it. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He goes back to that moment when he was baptized by John. He goes back to that very place. And that's where he goes. You need an altar in your life. Verse 39 says that they sought again to take him, but he escaped. He's not going away because he's scared. He's withdrawing because it's not yet his time. Now you can feel the tension building in John's narrative if you just read it carefully. While the crowds throng to Jesus and they're so enthused about his miracles and they're responding to his teaching and, and never a man spake like this man. While all that's happening, the religious leaders are becoming more and more angry at his popularity. And what happens just next is going to tip the scale dramatically. This will be the last of seven miracles recorded by John during Jesus' years of earthly ministry. And it only occurs, it only appears, it's only written in John's gospel. By the end of this chapter, Jesus will be on a collision course with Calvary. And it's all orchestrated by the Jewish Sanhedrin. The chapter opens like this. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Jesus and his disciples, they visited this family often during the Gospels. Since Bethany was a short distance from Jerusalem, easily walkable in less than an hour, their home was an ideal place to stay during all the feast days of the Jews. And during his visits, you know this family, they're a little dysfunctional. Luke tells us the story. During their visits, many times, Martha was cumbered about with much serving. She's in the kitchen banging pots and pans around because Jesus just brought 12 men and himself for dinner. And Mary, meanwhile, the Bible tells us in the words of Luke, she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So Martha's making a lot of noise in the kitchen, kind of passively, aggressively letting Mary know that she should be in there helping. And Mary's having none of it. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. And their descendants are still among us today. The people that do all the work and feel bitter about it and the people that are so heavenly minded that they're no, never mind but Mary is a, she's a genuine worshiper. She's not lazy because very soon we'll read that she will anoint the Lord with ointment and wipe his feet with her hair. But right now, that's still a little bit in the future. Right now, their brother is sick. Here's the problem. Jesus could easily heal him just by speaking a word even from a distance. He just did that with the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He spoke a word and the boy was healed long distance. 
Or at least he could respond to the sister's plea for help. Or at the very least, he could show up to offer some sympathy. But instead, Jesus does nothing. In fact, he delays his journey to his friend's home so long that Lazarus dies in the meantime. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Mary and Martha are distraught because Lazarus has been in the grave now for four days. And you hear me, the situation is absolutely impossible. But my Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. My goodness. These things said he, and after that he said to his disciples. So Jesus has got word that Lazarus is very sick. But he says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he's sleeping, He'll do well because he's been sick. If he's resting, that's good. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. And so Jesus has to break it down on an elementary level. No, no, uh, no metaphors for these guys. They're not that smart. So Jesus says unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That's a strange thing to say. Jesus who could heal a sickness with a word, I'm glad I wasn't there when he died. Here's why he was glad. To the intent you may believe. So nevertheless, let us go unto him. I could just speak a word from here, but I wanna take you with me and we're gonna walk into that. Many years later, the apostle Paul would write these comforting words to the church. We quote them at just about every funeral we do at CCC. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Paul never told us, grow up and don't sorrow. That would be ridiculous. We're human beings. We have emotions. And furthermore, if anybody's important to you, if anyone's beloved by you, of course, you're going to sorrow. He didn't say don't sorrow. He said, do not sorrow as others which have no hope because I'm writing concerning them which are asleep. That's Thessalonians. Here's what he said to the Corinthians. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Where in the world did the Apostle Paul get the idea of calling death sleep? He got it from Jesus, who just said death is like sleeping. To a Christian, death is just sleep. What is sleep? Sleep is a disconnection from those who are still awake. Sleep is rest for our body and mind and spirit. Sleep is saying good night to the old day and good morning to a new day. Sleep is the doorway to a renewed body. Sleep is God's gift 
to us. And best of all, sleep is only temporary. That's why Jesus called death sleep. And that's why the apostles called death sleep. And that's why the church still calls death sleep. Death is a terribly ferocious enemy. The Bible says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It's fearsome. It scares us. And of course it should because we're helpless in the face of death unless we have the Holy Ghost inside of us. And then death is only temporary. Death is a sad separation but it's only for a while. It's good night here and good morning over there. And so we stand on the hope of the church. But the disciples, they're really afraid. They're not just afraid of Lazarus being dead. That happened all the time in a primitive society. People died very young. People died from a lot of causes that wouldn't even be a risk today. But the disciples don't want to make this risky trip because they understand just how dangerous it would be for Jesus to come out of hiding, so to speak, and go back into the territory of the Jews. They say to him in verse 8, Master, the Jews of late, they sought to stone thee, and you're really going to go there again? And doubting Thomas, of all people, doubting Thomas, he gets downright sarcastic. He looks around at all the guys in verse 16, and he says, let's go, that we can die with them. He's totally sarcastic. Well, I guess we're all going to die. Let's go be good soldiers for Jesus. They're scared because you can feel the tension building in the gospel of John. When they finally get there, the tearful accusation from both of Lazarus' sisters is simple. Both of them say it. Martha first in verse 21, Mary next in verse 32. But they both say the same thing. Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. You could have prevented this, Jesus. Jesus, you could have healed him. Jesus, you didn't answer our prayer. Jesus, you didn't even bother to show up in our family's darkest hour. Jesus, you left us all alone. But my Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. As he said to his disciples, this sickness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, what we see as delayed answers or denied requests are actually divine opportunities. You can't see a healing unless you've been through a sickness, and you can't see a miracle unless you've been through an impossible situation. I want to back up and run that truck by you one more time. You can't see a healing unless somebody's been sick, and you can't see a miracle unless you're smacked in the middle of an impossible situation. If you're looking around and it is improbable, impossible, totally unlikely, and without any hope, you are standing on miracle territory. You say, I don't have any other hope but God. There's no better place to be than that. I have no other hope but God. My goodness, I wish somebody would kind of get your fists in the air a little bit and just kind of pray. Just push a little bit. You may be standing on impossibility, but you're standing in the presence of a God for whom nothing shall be impossible. Yes. 
This isn't just an ancient document. This is our faith. This is the word. This is our God. This is Jesus who can do anything. Oh my, feel something in this room tonight. Thank God for doctors, but doctors don't have the last word in the life of a child of God. Thank God for counselors, but quite frankly, counselors don't have the last word in the life of a child of God. God has the last word over my life. God has the last word over my situation. My goodness. Martha runs up to him and they have a little talk and she's so hurt and disappointed. And then she reaches down somewhere in her and she tries to grab a hold of faith and she says this, but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. And now she gets into the escape clause, just in case. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last days. Now don't you criticize Martha. What she just said is, Jesus, I trust you either way. Even now, you can work a miracle and astound everybody. But if not, it's going to happen at the last day. Oh my. Either way, I get my brother back. <laughs> Either way, our family's reunited. Either way. And Jesus replies to her. Martha, glad you said that. Because I am your answer. Either way. Whew. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he adds this. We don't usually quote this one. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe that, Martha? Jesus said, I'm your answer either way. Because while you're looking at whether it's now or then, I'm telling you, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm God. I'm standing right in front of you. Those who live and believe in me get life either way. <laughs> My goodness. Christianity is not the doctrine of life after death. Other religions teach that. We don't. Christianity is not about life after death. Christianity is about life instead of death. We already have eternal life in us right now. That's why when the rapture happens, you're going up to be with the Lord. You've got eternal life living in you right now. It's just waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God on that day. When we become like him, we see him and we are made like him. For we shall see him as he is. Not wait until I die to find out if I've got eternal life. I've got eternal life right now. And that's why I'm not terrified of death. Because death is just sleep. It's just a transition for us. 
They next take Jesus to Lazarus' tomb. And when he stands in front of the tomb, we read the shortest verse in the entire Bible. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. That's every child's favorite memory verse. <laughs> Jesus wept, however, is a profound little piece of writing. Jesus wept says it all when there's nothing else left to say. Jesus wept tells me that he feels our pain and he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It's like the lyrics of the song. They say, God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand and you don't see his plan and you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. My goodness, I feel the heart of somebody in here today. Um, you're grieving. I'm not talking about funeral services. I'm just talking about grief. I'd like this church to lift up your hands for a moment. And I'd like you to just pray. I, I don't know exactly what we're praying over. I just feel to pray. There's a, a cleansing that happens when we pray. There's a strengthening that happens when we pray. There's, there's ministry that happens when we pray. I don't know what you're grieving over. It may be a failure. It may be a disappointment. It may be a struggle. It may be a loss. I don't know what you're grieving over, but I know that Jesus is here and Jesus wept. He feels what you feel. His heart is touched by your pain. Church, would you just push that just a little bit? We'll move on, but just push that a little bit. It's so important that we don't just parse out the word and do it clinically. It's so important that we let the word speak when we're together, that we let the word minister when we're together. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Oh, I worship you, God. I worship you, God. And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Amen. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But I'm praying because of the people which stand by. That's why I said it. 
that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So Jesus is doing instructional praying right now. He could say this all quietly or privately, but he's teaching even as he prays. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice. He went from weeping over his friend to these three words, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. This is amazing. Jesus specifically called the name Lazarus because there was so much power in his voice that if he hadn't said Lazarus, there would have been a mass resurrection in that graveyard. Let me tell you, there's a day coming very soon when Jesus isn't going to say Lazarus. He's just going to say, come forth. And there will be a mass resurrection in every graveyard where the saints of God are buried. Whew, my goodness. But for this day, it's Lazarus. And Jesus brought him out of the grave, but that was only part of the job. He now commands the others to loose him and let him go. Can I just make an application? The new birth is miraculous. Seeing people born again and brought in to the family of God. But it's only the beginning when they come out of that old death life of sin. Now the discipling begins. Discipling gets a bad rap today because a disciple and discipline, that comes from the same root. And people don't always like that. But discipling is so necessary. What is discipling? It is the loosing of those old grave clothes of sin and, and life and habits. Newly resurrected people, newly born again people are still very limited. They're still bound just like Lazarus. It specifically says he was bound hand and foot and face. You know why every new believer needs a church family? Because we've got to learn, we've got to teach them how to learn to work with their hands to do things in the kingdom of God and how to walk with Jesus with their feet and how to see revelation with their eyes. So we've got to loose them hand and foot and face and we've got to loose them and let them go. Your prayer for new believers, your love for new believers, a simple thing like a handshake, a hug, an encouraging word, you don't know what that accomplishes in the life of somebody for whom this is all new. Don't be one of those people that just attends and you talk to your friends and then you leave because you got your little religious fix. Watch the family. Watch the babies. Keep them from stumbling. Keep them from falling. Help them with hurts. Help them with misunderstandings. We're a family. This is the family of God. You don't understand the power of one encouraging word from an old gray-haired senior who's walked with God for a lot of years, and we all know it. But one word from somebody like you can lift up a new baby in Christ and think, they think I can do this. They think I can get there. They think I can live this. They think I can make it. It's so important. Loose them and let them go. Now, this is the miracle. I'm almost done. This is the miracle that tips the scale with the Sanhedrin. And they actually call an emergency meeting to deal with the Jesus problem. 
They are afraid. They say, we're afraid that all men will believe on him. And they're afraid that the Romans will punish their nation if that happens and there's some kind of uprising following after Jesus. But they have a high priest that year. His name is Caiaphas and he's very crafty. And he sees it quite differently because he's an old KG politician. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, he scolds them, you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us, it's beneficial, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. He said, we're going to kill this Jesus and we'll let him be the sacrifice and it'll pacify Rome and it'll put down any commotion and the whole nation won't perish. We're going to kill one man for the good of the nation. And this spake he not of himself. He didn't even realize it. But because he was in the office of high priest, a spirit of prophecy spoke through his words. He didn't intend it. He thought he was talking about a political assassination. He was talking about a sacrificial offering for sins. This spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. And here's what he prophesied. That one man would die for the good of the people. He prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Here we are. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Even an old cagey politician named Caiaphas couldn't help himself but prophesying when he got around Jesus and his impact. He doesn't even realize that he's speaking prophetically because one man will indeed die for all people. And the Jewish Sanhedrin will unwittingly play a part in the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now it's unbelievable to me that they would go straight from witnessing a miracle to plotting a murder. But you see, the cross is getting closer. And this right here, this one verse in John is the point of no return. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put Jesus to death. They have crossed the point of no return. Jesus basically goes from here back into hiding until the week of the Passover. And then he returns to Bethany to visit his friends one final time. They share a beautiful supper together. And guess what? Martha is serving, but she's not complaining this time. She's serving Jesus and a brother who was recently raised from the dead. And Lazarus, newly raised from the dead, his testimony is impacting his whole community, the Bible says. People are actually coming by just to kind of look in the, the yard and see Lazarus. And he's sitting with Jesus. And it's in that setting that Mary, sweet Mary, the worshiper Mary, the one that is every time she's seen in scripture found at the feet of Jesus, that Mary, she performs a final act of worship. John 12 and three. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance, the odor of the ointment. One of our pastor's wives, Sister Janice Jostrand in Ohio, very powerful woman of God. She wrote a song, it's been recorded by everybody. 
I've come to pour my praise on him like oil from Mary's alabaster box. Don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears and dry them with my hair. You see, you weren't there the night Jesus found me. You did not feel what I felt when he wrapped his loving arms around me. And you don't know the cost of the oil in my alabaster box. She literally pours this expensive fragrance on Jesus and she wipes his feet with her hair and she's at his feet worshiping. And Judas Iscariot takes offense at Mary's extravagant worship. But really, he's just using a spiritual sounding excuse to cover up his sin of stealing from the money bag of the disciples. Judas appears five times in John's gospel, and these are his only recorded words. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? He doesn't care about the poor. He's looking for an excuse to get more money in the money bag so he can steal it. That's all. And here's Mary worshiping. And here's the disciples eating and fellowshipping. And here's Judas criticizing. And it riled up the master. And then said Jesus, leave her alone. It is against the day of my burying that she has kept this. The poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. Leave her alone. She's anointing my body for burial. She's spiritually sensitive to what is happening in this week. Mark records it differently. He records an extra statement of Jesus. Jesus said, verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Jesus says, it riled him up. Leave the worshipers alone. Let the worshipers be extravagant if they want to because they only have a limited opportunity to worship. I wish his words could echo down through the corridors of time and history and land smack dab in the middle of our church and our city. Leave the worshipers alone. I know there's a lot of people today trying to pre-package and customize and calm down any kind of religious expression. And if that's you, I apologize on behalf of everybody here because we're not that kind of church. In this kind of church, we love worshiping God. We get a little noisy sometimes. We get very emotional sometimes. People speak in other tongues around here and we don't even try to send them to a side room or down in the basement. We just let them go. You know why? Because Jesus said, leave the worshipers alone. Let them pour out their praise on me. Let them pour out their testimony on me. You don't know the cost of the oil that's in their alabaster box. You don't know where I brought them 
from. You don't know what I delivered them from. You don't know anything about their testimony. You just see them show up and you look at them and you kind of say, I wish they'd calm down, quiet down, shut down, sit down. But Jesus said, leave the worshipers alone. Let her worship, Judas. And then he said, wherever this gospel is preached, what she's done it's going to be spoken of. Jesus said, when you remember me, remember her. She was the one who gave her all. She was the one who anointed my body for burial. She hath done what she could. And if Jesus could be here tonight finishing up this Bible study, he might say something like this. When the people who hated me so much nailed me to the cross and I was in agony and people are screaming and my blood is streaming out of my body. When the people who hated me nailed me to the cross, I could still smell the perfume of the one who loved me more than they hated me. That perfume, that incense, that ointment, it was such a strong fragrance that it filled the room where she broke that box and poured that worship out on me. And when I went to the cross, I could see all the hatred. I could hear all the shouts and all the cries and the crucify him, crucify him. But I could smell the perfume of that extravagant worship that of that extravagant worshiper that poured everything she had out on me. And that remains the question for the people of God. And I apologize for being emotional, but I love this Jesus. <coughs> I apologize for the tears, but I love this Jesus. I apologize for kind of ending on this kind of note because it should just kind of be neat and prepackaged. But the question for me is, will you still pour out your worship to me? Will you pour out to me what is costly to you? <laughs> I am finished. But I wish you'd lift up your hands as an act of worship. I wish you would close your eyes as an act of worship. I wish you would lift up your voice as an act of worship. And I wish you would pour praise out on Jesus at the end of this Bible study. Don't let it just trickle out begrudgingly, reluctantly, but pour your praise on him. Pour your praise on him. It was the last thing he took to the cross was that praise that had been poured out on him so unselfishly. Everybody else was reviling him, but he could smell the perfume of her praise. Oh my, let's stand like a standing ovation of praise and lift it to the Lord. Oh, 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 oh,